Thank you, Ace. Appreciate that, man. Yep. Hey, well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it uh, to the book of Ephesians. Now, we've all had the experience of bumping into somebody we know who's recently gotten married, right? And when you, know, when you ask that young couple how they're doing, they'll almost always say the same thing. They'll say something like, oh, it's so wonderful. I get to go home every night to my, you know, my very best friend. And if you've been married any length of time, it can sometimes be hard to avoid the eye roll, you know, because uh, people who've been married a while, they understand something. They understand that given enough time, that young couple is going to weather some seasons of difficulty. They're going to you know, let one another another down from time to time. They're going to disappoint one another from time to time. They're going to misunderstand one another. They're going to fail to understand one another. Um, And, uh, yeah, they're just going to go through some seasons of that. And they're going to go through that over and over and over again. And uh, even though that initial married season is such a beautiful season, God does some important things in that season. Um, But this is also why it's so meaningful when you discover people that have been married for 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years. In fact, if you've ever been at a wedding, at most weddings, they usually call all the married couples out on the dance floor. Then they begin to eliminate couples, you know, based on how long they've been married. So the MC will say, hey, anyone on the floor who's been married less than a year, take a seat. And then, hey, less than five years, take a seat. Less than 10 years, take a seat. And they'll continue to raise that number until every couple has been eliminated except for one. And not coincidentally, that couple is also usually the slowest couple on the floor as well, right? But what does everybody do with the, when that one couple is left on the dance floor? They cheer, they clap, they applaud. And I think this happens for a couple of reasons. First, everybody in that room understands the monumental feat that this couple has accomplished. They appreciate what this couple have weathered together, and yet they're still together. And I think secondly, they also know how beautiful it is when two people learn how to love one another sacrificially over the long haul. Because deep down, we all, every one of us in this room, we want marriage to matter. We want to be able to see it as something magnificent and something beautiful. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul paints a picture of marriage that is meant to reflect the beauty of Christ's relationship with the church. And this is shocking because what he's telling us is that our marriages aren't just about us. They're not just simply for us. What the Apostle Paul is telling us is that Christian marriage in particular is meant to show the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ's relationship with the church. It has a bigger purpose than just being about me and I believe this is a picture that Christians need to recover and need to reclaim. And here's what the Apostle Paul is going to tell us in chapter 5, and we're going to walk our way through it in just a minute. But he's going to tell us that marriage is meant to be a submission competition 
that it's meant to be a race to the back of the line. That Christian marriage is meant to be a place where husbands and wives regularly say to one another, you go first. Your needs are more important than my needs. Now, the good news is that if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, none of this applies to you. You are off the hook. Because what we're going to be talking about today is what Christian marriage should look like and why Christian marriages are supposed to look different than everyone else's. But you need to know, in case you ever want to become a Christian, that Christian marriage is meant to be that submission competition. Now, you're going to notice a couple things. First of all, Paul is going to speak to wives uh, a little differently than he's going to speak to husbands. But I want you to take note that he's going to essentially ask them to do exactly the same thing. And Paul begins by talking to wives. And here's what he says. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, hey, what could be any clearer than that? Let's pray together. Okay, that didn't go very well. Now, listen, if this bothers you, I'm glad it bothers you, and so I'm going to leave it on the screen so it can continue to bother you. Because if you're bothered, you're going to be engaged. So I want you to stay with me to the end. And we're going to try to uh, reclaim uh, these words. In fact, some of you are here and maybe you're like, you know what? That verse right there is one of the reasons I quit going to church. Hey, I thought I liked this church until today. Now I'm not so sure. Well, if that's you, I am glad that you are here and that you're either here or watching online. Uh, so what you may not know is that the Bible you're reading from or our English Bibles are actually translations from an ancient Greek lang- or an ancient language called Koine Greek and that the oldest and the most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament, if you took this verse and you translated it literally what it says on its own, it would say simply, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. The the verb there, the verb submit, isn't there. It has to be imported from someone else. And this is a pretty common uh, occurrence in this Greek language. But before I explain why it's not there, I want to explain something else, and this is so important. When the Apostle Paul, so often when we approach the Bible, we ask a very good question. What does this mean to us? But I would argue that a better question to start with is what did it mean to them, to the first century audience that it was written to? Uh, so, in, so in other words, the Bible was certainly written for us, but it was not originally written to us. So what did it mean to them. And what I want you to know is that when the Apostle Paul's first century audience heard him teach about women submitting to their husbands, unlike us, they weren't the least bit surprised or offended. They were like, well, yeah, 
tell us something we don't know. See, they had no choice. This wasn't new information. This wasn't even a big deal because uh, what Paul was doing was finding common ground with his primarily Greek and Roman first century audience. In fact, this command didn't surprise anyone in the early church because the men of that culture, both Roman culture and Greek culture, as well as the Jews also had a version of this. Men in that culture had something that's referred to as patria potestas. When you put those two words together, that meant that in the first century, Husbands had legal jurisdiction over their children and they had legal jurisdiction over their wives. What I'm telling you is that in, in, that, in the culture of the first century in that day, uh, essentially children and wives belonged to their husbands. I'm not telling you that's right, I'm just telling you that's the way it was. So when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, they're like, well of course, because if we don't, he's going to sell us, he's going to trade us off, he'll have us arrested, he'll divorce us and cast us out. Of course we submit to our husbands. So this was no big deal to them. But it does seem like a really big deal to us. And this is one of the things that I so love about God's Word. God's Word is never bound by a single culture. God's Word transcends time. It transcends culture. So it has, it has a way of offending the audience in the first century, and we'll talk about what offended them in a minute, and it has a way of offending us today. But I want you to wrestle with it because it is the Word of God. So, why no verb in the oldest Greek text? In other words, why is the word submit missing here in the original language? Well, it's because uh, the verb submit is actually inferred from the verse that came before. So we should probably ask, well, what is the verse that came before. Well, here it is. Here's the verse that sets the tone for everything that Paul's about to say. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul begins this section with a command that's given to all followers of Jesus about the, how they should live when they're uh, around other followers of Jesus. They should submit to one another. In other words, they should consider the needs of others as more important than even their own needs. They should be willing to put themselves lower than the Christ follower who is sitting next to them. And so this is a baseline Christian command. He, he gives it to uh, all followers of Jesus, regardless of their gender, regardless of their marital status. And then what he does, and this is so brilliant, is he then launches off that foundational Christian platform to find common ground with his first century Greek and Roman culture. 
And he, he goes on, he says, so submit to one another and then wives to husbands. Wives to husbands. So ladies, let me speak to you for a minute. I understand how this is offensive to you. It's probably offensive for a number of reasons. First, I think we believe that submission undermines and erodes the equality of the sexes. But biblically speaking, this simply isn't true. Equal- the Bible would argue this way, that equality itself demands submission to one another. Equality itself demands submission to one another. And let me be clear, men and women are equal co-bearers of the image of God. Men and women are equally loved and valued by God. God is asking you to submit to your husbands, not because you are less than your husbands, but because that is what Christ has done for you. He put your needs first. He put your needs ahead of his own. And some of you may be here this morning, I'm still talking to the ladies, and you're less, a little less ruffled or offended by these words. Maybe you grew up with them. Maybe you're accustomed to to them. And so you're probably thinking, well, you know, I'd probably do a better job submitting to my husband if he was worth submitting to. I mean, if, hey, he would do better, if he would lead better, then maybe I would do better, right? Um, So I did a survey this week, and uh, I surveyed a bunch of people, and I found out that actually 100% of the men are not worthy of being submitted to. That's shocking, isn't it? I know. Uh, But your heavenly Father says, I want you to place your man's hopes, dreams, and desires ahead of your own, not because he expects it, not because he's asking it of you, but because I expect it of you. And because that's what I did for you. And I want you to notice too that he isn't appealing to culture or to the laws of the day as to why women should submit to their husbands. He appeals to Christ's relationship with the church. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. Now this word head here has two primary meanings, and it's very debated what it means in this context because it could be either. Uh, In some cases the word head means source. So what he would be saying here is the husband is the source of the wife. Because if you'll recall, back in Genesis 1, when God made a woman, he took something from man. So the man was the source of the woman in the same way that Christ is the source of the church. Or in other contexts, it means authority. Um, And so it's it's highly debated what the word means here regardless of, of whether it means source or authority, uh, the implication of the verse is still the same. Wives are being asked to submit their needs, desires, hopes, and wishes, and dreams to those of their husbands. Now, 
while the first few verses we've gone over here to wives are offensive to us, they wouldn't have been offensive at all in the first century, the words that Paul's about to speak to husbands were highly revolutionary in the first century. They would have been not just offensive, they would have been game-changing. They would have been uh, revolutionary. Um, and here's why. Uh, because he says uh, to men, to the men, oh, by, by the way, one more thing. I want to point out, ladies, that uh, this idea of submission or yieldedness or placing yourself under, um, it's not to demean you or suggest you have no value, but what Paul makes clear is that this is a way of witnessing to a world that desperately needs to see couples giving themselves away for one another. It's a witness to Christ and his relationship with the church. So that means that all of our marriages are meant to serve a bigger purpose than just you or just you and your happiness. Our marriages, Christian marriage, is meant to glorify Christ. First, primarily, and foremost. All right. So, uh, this is what he says to men. Husbands, love your wives. Now, we hear that verse and we go, just like they did in the first century with wives submit to your husbands, we go, well, of course a husband should love his wife. I mean, duh. Right? Yeah. But in the first century, it wasn't, of course, in the first century, it was, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't have an obligation to my wife. She belongs to me. I can do whatever I want to with her. You mean to tell me I have to love and serve my wife? And so Paul says, that's exactly what I'm telling you. But he doesn't just ask husbands uh, to love their wives. It's not that simple. He ratchets it up. He takes it up a whole nother level. He says, husbands, I want you to love your wives just as Christ, there it is, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what Paul is calling husbands to is not to just love their wives, but to to love their wives in a give myself away for her every day kind of way. And again, that is also meant to be a witness to the gospel, to glorify Jesus. Friends, this is why I say it's so important that Christians stand up and recover and reclaim and talk about what it means to be in a Christian marriage. Because a Christian marriage is meant to point people to the beauty and the majesty of the gospel of Jesus. And it's vital that we get this. So how can a man love his wife in a give himself up everyday kind of way? Well... He loves sacrificially, like Jesus. He loves selflessly, like Jesus. He loves tirelessly, like Jesus. He makes her needs more important than his own, just like Jesus did. So, in essence, God is asking exactly the same thing of husbands and wives. He's framing it differently, but he's asking the same thing. He's saying, look... If you're going to love your wife, husbands, in a give-yourself-away, everyday kind of love, 
That's going to be hard and it's going to be humbling and you won't always do it very well. Let me, and I just need to tell you, so when I, I'm preaching God's word, but this does not mean that I this morning am an expert in marriage. Guess what? I have struggles in my marriage just like all of you do. Marriage for me has been very, very humbling. Let me give you an example of this. So one time Jackie and I were on vacation with our kids. They were all three still kind of young at the time. And like many of you, when we're going back and forth to Florida, we had stopped to spend the night in Atlanta, Georgia to kind of, you know, break up the trip. So the next morning we're packing up to leave and Jackie looks at me and she says, as we're on our way out the door, hey, did you get all the bags? Well, I didn't really like that. Because I kind of felt like, look, I'm a grown man. Of course, you know, I, I know I have two eyes. I know how to look. So I said to her, honey, I'm a grown man. Now, I didn't just say it that way. I said grown, and then there was a fill-in-the-blank word, word after grown. I said, I'm a grown man. Now, to be fair, that word is in the Bible, but I was taking it out of context. <laughs> so I said, I'm a, you know, I'm a grown man. Of course I got all the bags um so but i digress so that night we arrive in florida and we begin to unpack all of our bags you know where this is going already don't you and we we pull all the bags out of the van and we can't find air and suitcase anywhere not coincidentally it's the biggest suitcase we had in the whole the whole thing belonged to aaron so we called the hotel back in Atlanta, and I had left that bag, the biggest bag, back in that hotel room. So do you know what Jackie said to me? I guess, and to Aaron, hey, Aaron, I guess Dad gets to take you out to do some shopping after our 10-hour uh, ride in the car. So do you know what I did? I took Aaron out for some shopping that evening, just as my wife had recommended. It was great father-son bonding time, right? It really was. Now, fortunately, we were able on the way back through Atlanta to pick up Aaron's bag, so no major harm was done except to my pride. But see, this is my point. Listen, one of the things marriage is supposed to do is eliminate pride in husbands and wives. Your marriage is meant to make you look like Jesus, to make you more like Jesus. I would say that God's used three things in my life to, fu to, to fully form Jesus in me. The first and the hardest has been marriage. The second was raising children, and the third was being in ministry. God has used all three of those things to humble me again and again and again and to conform in me the image of Christ. This is why sometimes we come to resent our husbands or resent our wives because God is using them in our lives to make us more patient and more kind and more loving and more understanding. And oftentimes we don't like any of that. So it's important to understand that marriage is supposed to be a humbling endeavor. I would encourage you, let it humble you. Your marriage will be all the better for it. And Paul isn't even done. He goes on, and, and look what he goes on to say. 
Not only does he say that husbands are to love their, their wives and to give themselves away every day kind of love, but then he goes on to say this. In the same way, husbands must love their wives as their own body. And then he goes on to say he who loves his wife loves himself because he says I'm talking about a mystery here, but it's a mystery that's meant to point to Christ and the church. Now, when, when Paul quotes in this context, he's actually quoting from the book of Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother uh, and be uh, united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so he's pointing out that when a man and a woman stand up and make a promise, and they say, I do, before God and family and friends, God does something mysterious in that. He takes those two people and he weaves their lives together so that they are literally now one flesh. And he's like, I don't know. It's a mystery. I don't know how it works. I just know that it does. This is why Jesus stands up in Matthew 18, for example, Matthew 19, pardon me, and says, hey, look, you guys think you can unwind what God has made one, but once something's one, you can't unwind that. I know that's a lot to get your arms around, but kind of think it through. God does something supernatural that you can't just undo in a divorce court. You can't undo, you can't unwind what God has made one. Now, I know that for some of you, uh, oh, and by the way, using this logic in this culture was scandalous because in order for a man and woman to come together and be made one, they had to be co-equal. They had to be co-heirs. They had to be equal in every way in order for that equation to work. So again, this was just scandalous in the first century. And so now I just want to move to the objection and then we're going to come back and look at the summary verse here in a minute. So some of you are here and you've been listening and evaluating and thinking this through and you're probably, uh, whether you're a husband this morning or a wife, kind of saying, look, well, I have just really a couple of objections if I'm going to move forward with this. I mean, so, so maybe you're a wife and you're here and you say, pastor, if I move forward with this, I mean, that opens the door for him to take advantage of me. Or maybe you're a husband and you go, hey, if I really live this way, I mean, that opens the door for her to take advantage of me, right? I mean, like if I move forward with this, she's going to be insufferable. Like, like if I take the pressure off of him, he's never going to come home from work. He's just going to live there. I mean, if I take the pressure off, he'll never follow through. She'll never follow through. If I take the pressure off, I mean, really, I'm afraid I'm afraid. I'm afraid she won't. I'm afraid he will. I'm afraid he'll start. I'm afraid she'll stop. Let me be clear. Fear is never a good thing in the kingdom of God. To do something or not do something because you are afraid will keep you from moving and doing the things that God wants you to do. To do. Fear is never a good reason to do anything in the kingdom of God. Trusting God is the way through. Acting on His Word is always the way forward. Friends, there is no hope 
in the model of marriage that you're in right now. I want to show you a picture. I, this was a picture I showed in the uh, What Every Happy Couple Knows. This is a picture of a little boy and a little girl practicing for marriage. And true to form, you know, she called backup in, right, to talk about how, you know, how bad the competition is on the other side of the rope. But uh, this is the model of marriage that most of us live in. And if your relationship has boiled down to something that simply just is a tug of war, I mean, if your relationship is all about arguing and getting your way, you know, and you're on one side and you're pulling with all your might and he's on the other side pulling with all his might. If your whole relationship comes down to basically, I demand my way, my needs are way more important than your needs. And I won't give up until you call uncle or you see that. I, there's no hope there, friends. There's no way through that. This model of marriage only results in exhaustion, futility, beating your head against a wall, insisting, demanding, uh, fighting, arguing, bickering, resentment, and bitterness. Now, if you're here this morning, and this is the model of marriage that you've been working out of, I know the thought, and, I mean, because what, 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 what do these young people have to do? They have to put down the rope, right? They have to let go of the rope. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking because I'm one of you, and I'm in a marriage. See, you're thinking, here's what some of you are going to do. You're going to go home, you're going to have the talk. Yeah, that's, you know, the tug-of-war thing, that's us. So, hey, let's do this, honey. Here's what we're going to do. All right, so we're both going to, like, drop the rope at the count of three. We're going to do it together, and we're going to do it at the same time. But, hey, now, listen, if you pick up your end of the rope, I'm going to run back and pick up my end, okay? But we're going to count to three, and we're going to drop our ropes together. One, two, three. Listen, that is not what God is asking you to do. Christ followers go first. Christ followers go first. You know why? Because Jesus went first for you. See? So if you're, so, yeah. It's not what Jesus is asking us to do. That is not the model for marriage. That is not Christian marriage. That is two people trying to get their own way and gain some sort of traction in the process to validate and meet their own needs. And I'll tell you why it's so important that as a follower of Jesus that you drop the rope first. Because when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, God through Christ dropped his end of the rope. He went first. He put your needs ahead of his own. He gave up everything for you and he did that before you ever moved. Whether or not you ever did anything in response to what he did for you. That is the gospel, friends. And your marriage, more than anything else, is meant 
to show the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. And let me just tell you, you may call yourself a Christian, but if, you're, if that's your model for ministry, for marriage, you're not in a Christian marriage. You may think you're a Christian, you may be a Christian, but you're not living a Christian marriage. Because followers of Jesus, they don't say, okay, we'll do it at the same time, we'll do it together. No, you go first. Because that's what Jesus did for you. So submit to one another, not out of reverence for your husband or your wife, but out of reverence for Christ. It's not about whether your husband is deserving or not. It's not about whether your wife is deserving or not. It's about whether Christ is deserving or not. Then finally, Paul gives us this summary verse that's so amazing and brings even more clarity to bear on what he wants for Christian marriage. He says this in verse 31, However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, this is so interesting because this actually speaks to different motives for submission. In other words, men are to consider their wife's needs as more important than theirs out of love, whereas women are to do the same thing out of respect. And this is so interesting to me because on the whole, wouldn't you come to agree that I think men more than women can struggle with the whole love thing? Wouldn't you agree that women traffic in the language of love just a little bit more easily in general? Now, you know, this is, I mean, there are exceptions to this. You may be in a marriage where there's an exception, but this is just the general makeup and the general rule. And so briefly, I just want to tease out, men, three concrete practical ways that we can better love our wives. Number one, we love our wives with our, with our time, we love our wives with our talk, and we love our wives with our touch. Our time, our talk, and our tr- touch. And isn't it true, men, how selfish we can be when it comes to touch and intimacy with our wives? I mean, there was a season in my marriage where my wife would say to me, you only touch me when you want it to lead somewhere. To which I would reply, you bet I want it to lead somewhere. Which kind of speaks to the issue. See, I wasn't, in those moments, I wasn't putting her needs ahead of my own. And you know what's sad about just my husband example? I could go on and on and on about the ways I failed to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is why marriage is so humbling, but it's supposed to be so beautiful, and deep down we get that. So we love them with our touch. What about loving them better with our time? You know, we can have boys' night out or ladies' night out on Monday, softball on Tuesday, work late on Wednesday, and then want to come home Thursday and play video games all into the night, right? Our wives need our time, especially if you're in a parenting season. Because you're not, look, there's not just one parent in your marriage. You're co-parenting. 
And that means equal time. And then finally, they need, your, they need our talk. They need us to share our hearts and our minds with them. They need conversation. They need that conversation to be affirming and uplifting. Use your words to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, just as I've observed that many men struggle with the language of love, I've noticed that many women tend to struggle with the language of respect. See, I don't think it's any, it's any accident that God uh, used those motivations. Um, so I know, I know wives I, I, who just speak freely ill toward their husband. They criticize their husbands both in private and in public. They almost scorn what they would call a lack of leadership from their husband at home. And what I would say is this, those kind of wives say they want to be led by their husbands, but God forbid that their husbands don't lead them in the way that they think they should. When was the last time, ladies, that you told your husband you respected something about him? Listen, you don't, this is not a command to respect everything about your husband. That's not the call. The call is not to, re, I mean, in other words, sure, call out your husband's bad behavior. Sure, call him out when he doesn't measure up. But there's a balance, right? You've got to be willing to... Honey, you know what I respect about you? Something about his character, something about his worth ethic. It could be anything. Here's what I need you to know. Your man needs that from you. He won't tell you that. But he will fight you to the death to get your respect. He will. When I do premarital counseling for young couples, I always tell the young woman, listen, he, he may not even fully art, know how to articulate this, but he wants your respect. He needs you to respect. So learn how to speak and act in the language of respect. Now listen, I know that everybody needs respect and I know that everybody needs love. So I'm not saying that women don't need respect. All right, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that men don't need love. I'm just saying that he's speaking to men and to women in, the, in their differences. In their differences. And we have to be willing to open ourselves up and embrace that. Amen? All right, so here's what I'd like to do. Here's how I want to close down our time together. I just want to pray that at Shelbyville Community Church, that Christian marriage would be the rule and not the exception. That we wouldn't think a tug-of-war marriage is the biblical or the proper way for a man and a woman to live together. So let me just ask you a question before I pray for you. How are you doing with the whole Christian marriage thing? You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're not married, you're single, maybe you'd like to be married, I, I'd invite you to think long and hard about the model for marriage that you're called as a Christian to go into. Let today instruct you for a future time or a future season in your life. 
how are you doing with the whole Christian marriage thing? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that we at SCC, that we would have marriages that would magnify you, Lord Jesus, that would glorify you, Lord Jesus, and that we would remember, Lord, that our marriages aren't meant just for us. They're meant to serve a bigger purpose and a bigger picture. They're meant to point to your gospel, Lord Jesus, to the truth and the fact that you let go of your end of the rope first before we ever made a move toward you. You gave up everything. You sacrificed your needs for us. Help us be willing to do that for one another, especially in our marriages. So, Lord, there are some wives out there today, and they need supernatural help. Would you give them that? Lord, there are some husbands out there, and they need supernatural wisdom and supernatural help. Would you hold them up? God, would you do a mighty thing as we seek to be men and women that don't just want to settle for being married. We want to have Christian marriages. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you guys for worshiping with us this week. God bless you.